You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is good to be back, Owen. Yes, we always love to do these um, international guest episodes. Um, Joined from the US, Nick Majuli, how are you going, mate? Good. How are you guys doing? I know it's early there. Yes, it is. It is 6 a.m. here. This is not the earliest one we've done, so uh, so that's okay. What's the time where you are? I think it's 4 p.m. Eastern right now. So okay, so you're <laughs> nice afternoon. Yeah, day yeah. day's kind of over. So <laughs> that's it. Just cruise into the evening. Um, we're just getting mm-hmm. started. But this actually works really well because we go from here. We're recording at home, and then we have our commute into the city, and we meet in the office, and the team's none the wiser. So <laughs> this is perfect. Nice. Um, Kate. Kate's put together some wonderful questions for you, Nick. Um, I actually first came across some of your work through Ritholtz Wealth Management um, and through some interviews and those types of things. So this is a really exciting conversation, especially given your background in like data analytics, programming, et cetera. Um, Kate, I know you had the book in the office last week. You were showing it around. So maybe you can jump off with the first question and then we can just riff from there. Wonderful. Yeah, Nick, I was wondering just to start off the conversation, your book's called Just Keep Buying. Are you able to sort of outline your case for for the book and maybe some of the arguments behind just keep buying instead of uh, buy sometimes, sell sometimes? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously a, a section on market timing in general, but the, the whole premise of just keep buying, you know, the subtitles, proven ways to save money and build your wealth. And what it really is, it's like a data-driven guide to personal finance and investing. And instead of kind of going with gut feel and what sounds good. And I actually test a lot of these things that we've heard, you know, in the media and financial, you know, journalism industry, all that. I just test a lot of these beliefs we have with data and just say like, is that actually true? Right. So like one of the, for example, one of the beliefs I test is like, 
they say there's like this massive retirement crisis in the United States and people aren't saving enough in this net. And there are some subset of people where that's definitely true. But if you look across the board, that's just generally isn't the case. In fact, retirees generally over time get wealthier and they don't end up even pulling down. Only one in six retirees pull down on their principal. Most of them just live off their um, what we have in the U.S. is Social Security and their investment return. So that's like counterintuitive. There's supposed to be this massive retirement crisis, yet most retirees are not even spending all their money, right? So it's not even spending down any of their money, really. So it's kind of interesting. But it's just a it's a host of a lot of those types of things. In the case of why should you buy sometimes, just buy all the time. It's just market timing is a futile exercise. And so I have a couple of chapters on that where I show that across different asset classes. I show that's true, and then I show especially with like U.S. stocks, like trying to buy the dip and do all these fancy things. It doesn't really work in the long run for a host of reasons, but I can definitely dig into why that's true uh, more later. So Nick, I did see on your blog, I said, I saw buying the dip is foolish. So many of our listeners wait. They're like, something's around the corner. There's a crash coming. The news headline said this. Someone that I saw somewhere said something. Um, what are some of the the rules, I guess, that the, the, our listeners should absolutely know about when it comes to thinking this way? You know, thinking about waiting, thinking about going all in. You know, I'm sure you come across this and then you've you've seen it in the data. Yeah. So my, my book has all these, every chapter basically comes up with a rule at the end. So there's like a final conclusion where you can kind of read all the rules and get a basic idea of what the book's about. But in this particular instance, I think the one rule is, you know, buy quickly, sell slowly. And what that means is generally since markets rise over time, you know, by buying quickly, by kind of, you want to invest as often as you can. That's another rule as well Is like, the more often you're investing, the sooner you're investing, the more likely you're going to participate in the market's growth, right? And of course, you're saying, well, Nick, what happens if there's going to be a big dip and I wait and I time the dip and you know that's going to be better? And like, yes, that'll you might get lucky and do that, and it's happened. But most of the time, dips are rare and big dips are especially rare. So even if you get it right now, you're probably going to get it wrong later because you're going to expect a dip to happen. You're going to be so worried about everything that's going on, and then it doesn't happen, right? And I think the best example of this is. If you just Google like stock market overvalued and then insert a year like 2012, 2013, whatever, you say stock market overvalued 2012, stock market overvalued 2013, you'll find tons of articles written in that year that tells you why the US stock market's overvalued. Or any, I mean, you probably can do this almost any stock market, right? But this is especially true in the US where they've been saying it's been overvalued for a decade. And yes, valuations are elevated relative to history. I'm not going to debate that, but yields are also lower than they've ever been in history. So there's like maybe some logical reasons why this is true. But the point being that if you're trying to like time the market and do this stuff, that you've been saying that there's been people saying to buy the dip since 2012, 2013, and they haven't had a sufficient dip to buy until March, 2020, right? That was like the first really big dip we've had in like a decade. The other ones have been, you know, a little bit under 20% mostly. So that's kind of my counter to them. It's like, yeah, you might get it right now, but you're going to get it wrong later. Mm-hmm. Statistically, at least. I, I, I might just um, expand on that a bit. I see that and hear that all the time when I'm speaking to investors. Uh, it's either too high or it's too low. Like, it, um, the Morgan Housel has this 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 saying: if you like, if you're if you're too scared to invest when it's near the top, you're going to be way too scared to invest when it's at the bottom as well. So there's like the behavioral element of this is so profound too, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, so I'm talking about the data pieces of it, and that's why Morgan's book is so useful because a lot of stuff he talks about is the behavioral side, and it's it's much harder to quantify that because you can't and you have to do randomized controlled trials of people during the dip. And okay, you're going to buy, you're not. It's just not really possible yeah. to prove a lot of this stuff. But I'm saying once you take that behavioral logic and you add the data to it, it just kind of makes it so much richer because you're like, look, like statistically, like 80% of the time, you're going to be better off just investing now than waiting or slowly waiting into the market. And if you take that with the behavioral time, the only time when slowly going into the market outperforms is when the market's dropping. And that's when you're the least enthusiastic to buy anyways, Mm -hmm. right? So if you kind of combine those, you're like, wow, so 
So there are cases where go, going slowly into the market, you know, makes sense. But in those cases, like the market's dropping every month. It's like, it's bad. Like you're not going to want to buy, like you're going to be some completely not want to buy. So yeah, I think the behavior stuff definitely matters. Hmm. And do you find that when people have a better understanding of the data and the sort of the history and the reasons behind all this, it's easier to buy um, buy at any time rather than waiting for this particular one event? A, a little bit, yes. Some people can be swayed by data. Other people are just going to have this feeling like, uh, you know, you can't, it, human behavior is very difficult to overcome with evidence. And that's why I like my favorite investment quote is, um, fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. And it's a very true statement because fear, that fear of a market crash, all that is going to really control people more than like all this evidence. But I like, obviously I'm very evidence-based. So I have to use that evidence to overcome that type of stuff. Right. So like if you're flying, like you're more likely to die in a car crash than you are to die in an airplane crash. Right. This is true. I mean, there's tons of data on this, giving you control for number of flights and all that stuff. It's just completely true. Yet people, every time they get in their car, they're not panicking, but every time, you know, there's a lot of people that are scared to fly in planes. Right. And I understand that, but it's so safe now. And it's been safe for quite a long time now that it's just, you know, the, the evidence is overwhelming. And there's just, there's something you can't get over at the end of the day, like people are just going to behave how they're going to behave. And I'm just trying to bring some light to like, here's what some of the evidence says. And like, you know, it's, it's looking at this evidence can help people. And there are people I've talked to said, you know, I did this decision. I was kind of worried at first, but you know, I just said, Hey, trust the process. And for, for the most time it's going to work. Most people are going to do this. And, and if you've been reading me since 2017 and following along, you would have done well so far. I mean, we haven't had another major, I mean, even the major crash we had in 2020, you know, I would, I would say it was warranted because the world economy was stopping. So, you know, that's a little bit different, but yeah. Hmm. So Nick, what did you find then when it comes to valuations, right? So you mentioned before that valuations, you know, are stretched historically, um, mm-hmm. but that's not, maybe that's not just representative of the stock market. Maybe there's other factors at play here. Do, do valuations matter when it comes to investing in a broad basket of securities? Yeah, of, of course, valuations matter in the in the short term, especially because, you know, at, at certain points, like once valuations are high enough, like future returns are lower. And if you look at that, there is some evidence of that. The issue is like, what are you going to do about it? Like you can say, oh, I'm just going to move to bonds. But like, there's no guarantee that that's going to, you know, valuations have been, you know, I think the CAPE first hit 30. I remember the CAPE ratio, I think the average is 15 for most of its history. First hit 30, I think like 2017 or something or something like that. And it's been above 30 for the last five years. So you've missed on a massive rally. It's basically doubled, over doubled that time. So even though, even if there is a crash and it comes down, do I think it's going to be 50% down and then stay down? Like probably not, right? So you've missed some sort of rally in the process. So of course, valuations matter, but it's, it's tough to know. And it's very difficult to time based on them. So my argument is just to keep buying over time and, you know, and just be diversified. Obviously maybe valuations in the U S are elevated, but maybe they're not in Europe or other places. And that's people made those arguments. And so owning other asset classes, not just having all your money in just US stocks or just, you know, foreign stocks or whatever, being diversified will allow or kind of you're diversifying across different valuation regimes is a way of kind of, you know, hedging your exposure. And that's what I would recommend because we don't know. Yeah. And like valuations are still elevated now, but they could get much more elevated, right? And like, what are they going to run to? I don't know. And so there's, there's not, we don't know the future. And so the most prudent thing you can do is just like, keep buying, keep the faith, you know, diversify and, and kind of see what happens. Yeah. And one of the, one of the statements you made in the book was that most markets go up most of the time. And I know you've looked at a lot of different markets across the world. Are you able to expand a bit more on this statement? Because I know a lot of people do get scared that 
um, when they look at the sort of history of the market that that was in the past and the future's not going to be like that. Well, I mean, of course, that's that's possible, you know, but we have, you know, a hundred over a hundred years of data now across multiple countries, you know, where equity markets have generally gone, you know, up and to the right over the long term. So of course, in a decade, you know, valuations matter even on a decade period or, you know, markets not aren't going to necessarily go up over even a decade or 15 or even 20 years. That sometimes happens. It's rare, but it happens. Um, but over a longer time period, they generally have increased, right, over someone's investment life. And so if you just look over the most equity markets go up most of the time. And I think that's true of real estate and most things, right? Obviously there are exceptions. You'd be like, well, what about Japan? Well, like, yes, if you had bought, if you had been a Japanese business person, you sold your business in 1988 and you bought right at the peak in 89, you know, all your money in at once. Like that's like the worst investment decision in human history without realizing obviously what was going to happen next. But how many people are making those decisions, right? Most people are probably buying over time. A, that kind of changes the risk a little bit. B, they're not, they shouldn't be putting it all into one asset class. That's also what's kind of risky. So if you've been buying, you know, US stocks and Japanese stocks and maybe Japanese bonds and a host of other assets, farmland, whatever else you had, you have had a very different financial picture than someone who put every dollar they had into the Japanese stock market in 89, right? So, you know, Japan's an exception. Greece is an exception since 08. Russia is an exception in 2022. We saw it drop like 80% in a month. And so these things happen. Trust me, I know them. I have to know all these horror stories because like I know I have to have counter arguments for this, right? So these kind of things definitely happen, but it's like, if we only invest based on what might happen, we would never invest at all, right? We would be like, oh, I can't ever get into this, right? And so you kind of have to get over that fear and say like, hey, I think the world generally is getting better. Yes, there's a lot of stuff happening. Yes, we're seeing a lot more stuff happen now because everyone has a phone and they can document things and the world looks like it's getting worse. But that stuff was happening, just wasn't being documented. We're just seeing it now. And I think that's the difference. So you got to realize like, I think the world generally is getting better. I mean, across the world, you know, people are living longer, health outcomes are getting better generally. So like remembering that positive, you know, progression of humanity is, is kind of key to a lot of this. Nick, I might um, ask a follow-up to this, if I may, which is how about the impact of falling interest rates? This is something that I get a lot in investing circles is how is that played into asset classes going up over say the last 30 years? Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great point because obviously as as rates drop, people are going to say, what are my alternatives? Do I want to put park my money in something, you know, most, you know, sovereign debt around the world, non-US is negative yielding at this point. So there's like, why would you own this at all? And then so you're like, you just hold cash. The other option is, okay, maybe you own US bonds and that's not paying much at all either, right? The rates are trying to go up a little bit, but still, you know, I don't know if the 10 years at 2.5 or maybe a little bit less than that. Um, they're just not paying a ton, right? And so because they're not paying a ton, you have to, you know, the 60-40 is now the 75-25 stock bond breakdown, right? So what's happened is you have to take on more risk in order you need to get yield, you need a return. And so to do that, you kind of have to, you kind of have to risk up and there's no real way around that. So that is a fair argument. So we could be in a melt up and if rates stay down and stay dead forever, like, you know, we could be more of a melt up price can go even higher, but what's going to have to happen is that expected future returns on stocks obviously have to come down as a result of that. So, I think what's happening is just like the the market is kind of like moving to a, a different equilibrium and maybe if rates stay low for a long time, that's, we can just expect lower stock returns going forward. But at the end of the day, what choice do you have? Like, are you going to be like, okay, I'm going to go to bonds. Bonds aren't paying. So like at the end of the day, it's always about what action can I actually take? So that's, it's a good argument people make, but what can you actually do about it? Is there some other magical asset class that's still paying, you know, 7% real a year or something like the U S stock market did, you know, over the last hundred years. 
No, there isn't. I don't know of one. And if you, and maybe you can find like, oh, I know this small company. Okay. Yeah. But that's, and you know, we need something that all investors can use. Is there a general asset class that's going to do that? I don't think so. And so because of that, you just kind of have to own the broad basket and you're just going to get what the world gives you. That's you have, you're going to get beta, market beta across the world. And so that's what you have to accept. I was just interested in more of the reasons that why we should be investing because there's a million reasons why we shouldn't. But I thought you outlined three really good and really clear ones in the book that I'd love you to talk about a little bit more. Yeah. So I think, you know, the if you look at the data on why people invest, like, okay, you can say, they, they ask people, why are you, what are you investing for? And they ask them kind of different motivations. Oh, I'm saving for a vacation. I'm saving for my kids, et cetera. The only thing that actually moves the needle and actually makes people want to save more and invest for the future is saving for themselves. So when you're investing, you kind of got to be a little bit selfish. And they've done experiments on this where they take your face. I don't know if you guys maybe had this in Australia, but it's a thing called Face App where you took a picture of yourself and then it aged you to make you look yeah. really old, right? So maybe you guys have seen this technology or something. But basically, they did something like this before that thing became popular. And when people saw these older faces of themselves, they were more likely to invest and in. like they were more likely to they were increase their savings or things like that. So investing for the future is one thing that's really important. Um, the second is because of inflation, like inflation is going to eat away. And right now in the United States, inflation is 8.5% a year. So inflation is just going to eat away at your purchasing power of your dollar. So just saving money is great. And that's like actually most of the battle, like most of the problems that people have, like, oh, I can't invest because they probably don't have money to invest. So the fact that you can even save money, if it's just sitting in cash, like you've already done, like, you know, I probably say 90% of the work getting invested is very easy. It's clicking a couple buttons and money moves around and you're good. Right. Obviously, it's not easy to hold through drawdowns and all that and crashes, but let's just let's just say it's easy enough to get invested, right? So that's the the hard part is getting the money in the first place. So so as inflation's just eating away at all of that, you know, the main takeaway there is that you're kind of just, you know, um, really kind of fighting against that by getting invested in income producing assets. And the third thing, and also probably the most important is that you're replacing your human capital with financial capital. Now, what do I mean by that? Human capital is like your skills. So imagine you took all your future earnings throughout your life and you brought them back to now. Like there's this time value of money idea of like, you know, you, if you're going to pay, you know, $4,000 or $50,000 a year for the next 20 years, you know, that's like a million bucks. Now you wouldn't pay a million dollars for that now. Cause there's obviously the money in the future is worth less. So you kind of, you discount all that, whatever that is. Let's just say that's like half a million bucks now or something. Someone would pay you half a million dollars now to have all that, you know, over the, the that payment stream over the course of your life. Right. So that's going to go down over time. Every year, less year you have to work is less human capital. You have less time to like earn money. So as a result, you need to find ways to pay yourself by investing that money. So it's going to pay you. So you're kind of like replacing yourself with a financial asset equivalent. So you can imagine like, let's say you can save, you know, they said 10,000 bucks in the next year, but your investments will earn you like a thousand dollars by the end of your life. Ideally, you know, maybe you can still save the 10,000, but now your investments are going to earn you like 40 or 50,000, right? So they're going to be paying you to offset your income. And then when you don't have income anymore, they're basically paying for you. It's like you're working still, even though you're not working. So it's kind of a complex, long type of thinking, but you really have to think of your assets as like replacing yourself so that you can retire and get paid and all that. And obviously, Every country is different. I don't know what it's like in Australia, what type of like, you know, social um, safety nets or social security type system you guys have in terms of payments and all that. But either way, you know, just even outside of that, I think people should be invested so they have their own capital kind of do what they want in case, you know, those types of safety nets aren't enough to provide for maybe the lifestyle you want. Mm. I think that's a great way to frame it. Like you have basically two sources of income for the rest of your life. One is your salary and one could be your assets paying you. Passive income is, you know, universal in terms of what people want when we produce content mm -hmm. for example you put the word mm -hmm. words passive income in the title you get twice as many people clicking on it because they're just interested in that thing um 
uh, you say that there's no one path to wealth. Can you just explain um, some of the paths that are worth exploring or um, some of the differences that you've come across in your time that have been effective? Yeah. So, I mean, I say there's no one path to wealth because I've seen people get rich in many different ways. Like people, some people own real estate. They have like a bunch of properties, physical properties. Some people buy stock index funds. Like, you know, they own that. Mm. Uh, some people own farmland. Some own a mix of these things. Like, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I don't want to say there's just one way. I think generally the, the correct ways to own income producing assets, assets that are paying you over time. And that could even mean like creating your own asset. You create a product and you really reinvest in your business and it blows up. Like that's also a way of doing it. So I don't like saying that there's a right and wrong way. And I think anyone who says that is being a little bit disingenuous because mm -hmm. for me to say like, oh, you have to own stock index funds. That's the only way to get rich. It's not true. There's all these real estate investors who say this guy's an idiot, right? Like, this is not true. And so, and I also think the opposite is true. Everyone's like, oh, you have to do real estate. It's the best way. And that's like, not necessarily for everyone. You got to think about what are the costs and trade-offs of all that, right? There's like obviously some hassle of being a a physical real estate investor that maybe some people wouldn't want to deal with. I don't want to deal with tenants or things like that. So you got to you got to think about things like that. So in terms of what works, it's that you got to figure yourself out. What do you really care about? Some people love property. They love kind of doing that type of stuff, running it, you know, fixing it up. Maybe they're very handy. Some people are very hands-off and like doing other things with their time. I think for me to maximize my time, it's putting money into an index fund and then not thinking about it and spending my time, you know, writing blog posts or other material, other things, you know, trying to create content. I think it's more useful for me to do that. It's the most valuable thing I can do with my time. So I think for all investors, what you need to do is just, you know, find what works for you, obviously try to minimize the time there, assuming you don't love doing it, you know, and then spend the time that you, that you free up by doing that to, you know, build wealth and bring in more income so you can invest more. That's really what's most important, I believe. Mm. And the point, find what works for you is really the key part there, because there's so many people, they'll hear one, uh, one off story in the media or through a friend of a friend of that person made wealth doing X, Y, Z thing. And that does not necessarily mean that they can also make wealth that way as well. Yeah. So I don't say, oh, become a blogger. That's the way to do it. Like I'm not telling people to do that. I actually don't think it's very effective if I didn't <laughs> tell you. So, um, but yeah, that's what I'm saying, figure out what works for you. And obviously that's going to take some experimentation. It's not easy, but if you're like, you own a property and you're like, wow, this is such a hassle. I can't deal with this. Then maybe you shouldn't be someone who's owning physical property. Maybe you should be someone mm -hmm. who's owning something that's very laid back or, you know, you got to think about that and figure out, you know, what you like, what you don't like. And that's really the hardest part really of the journey. Mm. Uh, Nick, one of the, one of the things that I'm constantly butting heads with, right, is that, you know, active versus passive investing is how most people frame this. But if we just think about, you know, the time and the effort um, and the knowledge that goes into trying to actively pick individual stocks versus, you know, these broad baskets you mentioned, they're like index funds. Like if you use an index fund, that probably frees up time where you could go spend time with your family, do other things, right? So mm -hmm. can you... Maybe can can you outline kind of the arguments against directed share investing from kind of from the from the dollars, but also from the data that that you've crunched to understand this problem in, in this equation? Yeah, so buying individual stocks directly and trying to pick stocks, um, I think there's two big arguments against it. And I think the first one I'm assuming your audience has maybe heard a little bit of, and it's basically you just look at the data and most stock pickers, active managers, whatever you want to call them don't beat the benchmark, their underlying market, that's their benchmark performance after fees. Like it's like 75, 80% or something will not beat the benchmark after fees. And you can, there's reports you can look up called SPIVA in the US. It's S-P-I-V-A, SPIVA. Those mm -hmm. reports 
are like the gold standard for like comparing you know active manager performance to the benchmarks. And a lot of times after three to five year periods, they just don't win out. Like it's very difficult to keep winning over time. And I think the data shows that you know roughly ten percent of people have skill in this in this area. So if you assume ten percent have skill with certainty, ten percent don't have skill with certainty, we can identify it. That means like the middle. 80%, four out of five people that are stock picking, we don't know if they're good. And it's like really tough to do that. So I think another thing about that is like, you know, I call this the existential argument is the second argument why you shouldn't pick, you know, direct shares or individual stocks is like, you don't know if you're good. Right. And that's, that's, what's tough. You can do this for like, if, you know, for example, if myself and you, you know, went and we, we each pick, let's say 10 stocks for the next year. And if I outperform you, does that mean I'm better? I don't think we can say with certainty I'm better. Now, if we go and go on the basketball court and play for two hours, like, and if I beat you by 50 points, it's probably pretty obvious that I'm better, right? So you can see pretty quickly, you know, or if I went against, I said, LeBron James or something, you would know he has skill and I don't. It's very easy. The feedback loops are short. We know who has skill, who doesn't. With stock investing, the feedback loops could be as much as 10 years before you know if someone has actual skill, right? It's really tough to know that. And, it, and that's that's the real issue I have is like looking in the mirror every day and being like, I'm spending all this time doing this. I don't even know if I'm adding value when I could just be buying the S&P 500 or a world stock index fund and just kind of go about my life and find the areas where I know I add value because I'm going to get paid more. And that extra money is going to be worth more than I can make on my fund. So that's another thing too, to look like, like the return on your time, return on investment. So if you have a Obviously, you have a million dollar portfolio. If you can get an extra, if, if let's say you're getting a 10% return, that's 100 grand a year, that's decent. You get an extra 1% on that. Now you're getting, you know, um, an extra $10,000. The question is, well, how much time did you have to spend to get that extra 1%, right? That's the question, right? And so if you don't have to spend a lot of time to get that 1%, that's great. But what if you only have, you know, $10,000 or uh, let's say you have $1,000, right? And, you know, you, that extra 1% is not a lot of money. You know, when mm. you think about it, it's like a hundred bucks. It's like, what? That's nothing, right? So a hundred dollars, like you could easily make that in like, you know, a week probably doing some side gig or something, maybe even a day, depending on your hourly rate, right? So you could easily make that and where you're, you couldn't earn that in your investment, you mm. know? So I think that's the key is to figure out like, where's your time being best spent? And that's like a big focus I have in the book. And I say like, where are you spending your time and energy and why that matters? And so, mm. um, yeah, I would just think about that a little bit more before kind of like going deep into, uh, into direct share investing and just like, you want to do it for fun. That's fine. That's you like it as, as recreational, fine, put some of your money in it. But most of the people I know that do it, they keep a bulk of their wealth and just like index funds and they're very prudent mm. and they like to play with a little bit extra money. And that's fine. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, having fun with it. But I think if you're going to do it with bulk of your wealth, you need to really kind of question yourself and say, Hey, is this really worth my time? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because we spend a lot of time thinking about if active managers are performing and if our um, super fund in Australia is performing and how companies have performed, but we don't spend that much time talking about whether we've actually performed and if we've actually done a good job ourselves. So I think that's a really interesting way to frame it if you are weighing up between the two. And I guess it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can actually, as you mentioned, invest in ETF slash index funds and individual shares as well on the side. Mm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you don't need to get, you know, uh, parochial and have, this is what investors tend to do, right? Is they have uh, like a view that they're going to become stock pickers and then they can't invest in an index fund when really you can do both. You can definitely do both. You can do many different things and it's probably important to do all of that. Um, maybe I'll ask the next question of Nick, Kate, and then you can do the one following that because I know you want to do that one, which is um, tell us the biggest lie in personal finance today. What do you think it is? The biggest law on personal finance is that you can cut spending, cut enough spending as a as a way to grow your wealth. Like cutting spending is a way to, to like get rich. And I I just 
don't see it in the data. It's just not, don't get me wrong. You're like, but I know this guy who like reused his dental floss and made his <laughs> dish soap at home. And you know, it didn't, I don't know. They use the same trash bag for three weeks at a time. I don't know. Like you can come up with people <laughs> that are very extreme and do this, but they're completely exceptions to the rule. And the reason I say that is because you look at the data savings rates, which obviously are somewhat correlated with wealth, right? In the long term, savings rates go up with income. The higher income people have higher savings rates. And, and if you look at the spending data, it's like as in, incomes increase, spending does go up, but it it goes up at a slower rate. And I, what I call it the law of the stomach, very simply, like, you know, if I 10x your income tomorrow, are you going to eat 10 times as much? No, you might spend a little bit more. You might go to nicer restaurants. Your spend, your total food spend would probably go up, but would it go up 10x? Probably not, right? You can only eat so much. There's only so much. So I call that law of the stomach. And it's very simple just to understand like why spending doesn't increase as much as at, with income. So the difference is savings and that saving gets invested and then you build wealth, right? So it's pretty obvious to me that this is like clearly the case. And I'm, I'm not saying it's easy to raise your income, but it's the only long-term sustainable path. Short-term, you can cut spending and make some, get some extra money, but mm-hmm. long-term you have to use income to get out of there. And I think that's something that people, you know, oh, you're peeing away a million dollars when you drink your daily coffee. It's like, it's just so, these are such silly arguments and they get headlines and that's great and all, but it's just not sustainable. And I've cut the data five different ways, you know, to look at this and it just doesn't move the needle when you cut spending. So I want to end this lie in finance and let's move forward as society and say, okay, what can we do to raise income? And that's where we need to focus. Yeah. And one of the interesting observations I saw in your book was about the stress uh, around not saving um, enough is more harmful than the act of saving itself, which I thought was really interesting. And you had a few stats as well there. Are you able to expand on that point a little bit? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's just some data and studies they've done that show that like people, you know, money is one of the top stressors for most people, at least in the United States. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where it is worldwide, but it might be true of other uh, cultures and countries as well. But and there's just so much stress around it to the point where like even people who are arguably rich who are like, you know, the actual millionaires and everything, they still are not worried if they're going to have enough money. And I think that's the point. Like even as people get rich, they still don't feel like they have enough. And I think that there's just some evidence that like, you know, being stressed about money is just, it's not always necessary. Now there are people, yes, if you're truly struggling, making ends meet, you have credit card, all this, like there's, that's a very real stressor. I'm not trying to downplay that. This is definitely true, but there's a lot of people that have nothing like that going on, not even close. Or even, as I said, there's a millionaires that are still worried about having enough money. And it's, that's the kind of thing that's shocking to me that in, you know, today's day and age, people would still be like, so you're doing fine, you know, like I don't, and that's the stuff that I just don't understand. You know, I don't really get it. There is some arguments I've seen someday that says like, oh, they're, they're worried about like a possible really negative health, health outcome. And they're going to have to spend, you know, in the United States, you know, the health coverage isn't as good as other countries. So because of that, they're worried they're going to have to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course that is a fair point, but it's very rare. It's very unlikely that something like that's going to happen. You're going to have to spend thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars out of pocket, and it's going to ruin you financially. It does happen, but it, I, as I said, it's, it's quite rare. So I, I don't fully understand all of it, but I'm trying to dig into the data to understand where it's coming from. Mm. Actually, Kate sent that to me, uh, I think it was a week or two ago when she read that in the book, she's like, you've got to read this. And she highlighted it. It's, um, it's such an it's such an interesting thing. I think we do this in multiple aspects of our life. You mentioned uh, personal finance being a big stressor here in Australia. It definitely is. Like people are worried about money. People are worried about probably money more than anything else other than say health, as you also mentioned. Um, how do you know then, Nick, how do you know like how much is too much saving? We see in like the financial independence, retire early community, people 
struggle to switch off the savings mentality. And then obviously we've got a lot of, a lot of other people that are worried they're not saving enough. How do you find the balance? And I guess not necessarily how do you find the balance, but have you determined like where is that balance? It's it's gonna be different for every person. I mean, for some people, there's there's not gonna be anything they can really do because they're just wired to like wanna save. And it just, you know, it's like little things like, for example, I was just joking with my my mom and sister recently, like when I go to restaurants, I don't really look at like the price. Obviously, like bottles of wine, I'm not gonna be spending a thousand dollars a bottle. I'm not like rich or that's where I spend my money. Like this is this is an eight dollar t-shirt. I don't own a car. Like I trust me, I keep a lot of my expenses very low. Mm-hmm. But when I go to a restaurant, I'm like, oh, is it the salmon's ten dollars more than the burger? I'm getting this. If I want the salmon, I'm getting the salmon, right? Nice. You know, so but but still, every time I go to McDonald's, I order off the dollar menu. Like, even though <laughs> I easily would spend more elsewhere, when I go to McDonald's, I order off the dollar menu because like that was as a child, that's what I always did. And so to this day, it's like ingrained in me, even though I can I can afford that six dollar whatever chicken sandwich whatever this nicer sandwich they have but like i still order off the dollar menu for some reason and there's just like a that's just an example an anecdote of like some people are just gonna be just wired to like want to save and even once they hit retirement they just they it's very difficult for them to spend and i we've had clients like that where it's like it's really tough for them to, to kind of go a flip a 180 from saving you know 60 percent of their income to spending any of it right because now they're not saving mm-hmm. but they're not only saving but they're now going into the negative and it's really tough for people and that's why you know in the i think in chapter two i talk about this only uh you know one in six or one in seven retirees are actually pulling down principal at a given point in time which is kind of shocking but it's like yeah, people just don't really like spending money because they, they're worried about, you know, some crazy outcome and not having money and they have no way of earning money again. And I, I kind of understand that to a, to a degree. Um, but yeah, what's the right amount? I don't have an answer for that. Like, I really don't. I wish I did, but you kind of have to figure out like, hey, like I'm going to be okay. And, you know, look at some of the data and say, you know, I'll probably be fine. And then just, you know, enjoy your life a little bit. I think anything that's too excessive is if it really starts to affect your life in a negative way. If you can't enjoy a moment because ever you're always thinking about money, I think that's where it's getting problematic. So I think, you know, you're going to enjoy your life a little bit. You know, obviously there's a, there's some people as that we've discussed previously who are in really bad shape. They have tons of debt, credit card debt, student loan, debt, whatever. And they, it's going to be tough. Yeah. They're, you're going to be stressed no matter what. And there's not much you can do until you get out of that situation. But there's a lot of people who aren't in that situation who are still stressed. And those are the people I'm talking to. Mm. Yeah. It, it seems to be like Nick, like some of the things you touched on when you were talking about index funds too, before you basically said, if you have a thousand dollars, the difference of 11 versus 10% is not that great. But I feel like this comes back to, understanding where you are in your life as well like if you're earlier in your journey maybe getting a bigger shovel i.e getting a bigger income trying to earn more is mm-hmm. vital rather than trying to save that extra dollar to investors to you know in an active fund or something like that like pick your wins basically like pick where you want to win and win big um mm-hmm. and then try to put the other stuff on autopilot yeah i agree that's why i say like don't worry about your asset allocation that much when you're younger and relatively poor to your future self right so and i have a chapter one is called you know savings for the poor investings for the rich and that's an absolute statement but it's also a relative statement in the sense of you know when you're 22 i assume you're going to be you're much poorer than you're going to be when you're 42 right assuming you know nothing barring some crazy thing you know most people have a career they save money you know so because of that, like realizing like what you, how you invest your money at 22 is almost irrelevant, but how you invest your more, your money at 62 is probably everything in terms of like your end of life stuff. But you know, what you're doing for a career at 62 is probably not that relevant, but what you're doing for a career at 22 is probably everything, right? So it's like, what you're talking about the shovel idea, you're picking wins and all that, that, that applies across the life cycle as well. Mm. Yeah. I think that's really important to keep in mind, especially because I know many of our listeners struggle, um, especially in the twenties when they're getting started of picking which 
brokerage account and picking which initial investment they make. And the really the most important thing is just get started. And I guess as you'd add, just keep buying as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So it's just a, a constant, you know, disciplined approach to doing it and, you know, figure out where you're spending your time. That's why, you know, I talk about in you know, chapter 21, you know, your most important asset is time. And a lot of that's like, where are you spending your time and energy? And that's what I didn't realize. I used to think like, you know, you're always told, Hey, start early, start investing early. And of course that's good. I'm not saying that's bad advice. I'm not discouraging that. I'm saying do that, but don't spend a lot of time on it. just put the money in there, get it going and then stop wasting, stop looking at it, stop obsessing it. Don't check your balance throughout the day. It's an absolute waste of time. Think about one day when you're 60 years old, you're going to lose and gain more than that in a single day. And you're going to laugh at how silly it was that you're spending all this time looking at your phone about, you know, your hundred dollar balance or a thousand dollar balance. It's just silly. Right. So my point is like, don't spend time on that. Focus on building your skills and, you know, work, work on your career. I think that's more important. Do some soul searching, figure yourself out. I think that's more important than what your asset allocation is at age 22. I think that's so important, Nick. Like you're here as the guy that's done all the numbers, obviously very like intellectual, very bright. And you're coming here to tell us like, actually you can step back and look at yourself to determine how, like what's important for you and how finance can play a part in that. And I think that's so important. You, you also, we also mentioned Morgan Housel, who we've had on the show uh, before. Mm-hmm. I feel like your book is a perfect complement for his book because he's talking about things that, as you mentioned, can't be quantified. Um, and you're bringing this totally different brain to the conversation as well. Um, and they both meet in the middle somewhere. And I feel like both skill sets are really important. Yeah. I mean, I wish we could, you know, quantify a lot of stuff because we could prove and disprove pieces of, you know, some of the things he's talking about. But I say like, someone even asked me, oh, I'm going to, I just bought your book and Morgan's, which one should I read first? And I said, read mine first. And then Morgan answers everything that like this mesh of data can't answer. Right. Cause there's obviously <laughs> for me to say behavior doesn't matter, be foolish. Obviously it's just harder to show how it matters. Yeah. And I think for me, I have to like, when I make arguments, I want to be like, you know, and there's, and trust me, Morgan's like, he's the best writer in our space, right? He knows his stuff. Like he's, you know, a lot of the stuff makes absolute sense. So it's just for me, I need to like, I love data. I love kind of crunching and saying, okay, well, this is what it looks like this or that, et cetera. So it's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's the best place for people to get your book, just keep buying uh, Amazon, because I noticed on your website of dollars and data, is that the best place to go? Uh, so yeah, so Amazon's great. I know, I think in Australia, we have Booktopia. I think that's another big place yep. to get it, especially in Australia. So I know I have that listed on like my landing page and everything. So uh, those are probably the two big ones I would, I would say in Australia. Um, but just generally, yeah, Amazon can probably get it to you for basically anywhere. So yeah, yeah, of course it can. It's um, here in mm-hmm. Australia, even Amazon has made its way through the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. definitely Kate's got to be one of the the number one subscribers <laughs> for oh, books. I was going to say, oh, and you have to mention Booktopia. They're an Australian bookseller. So oh, <laughs> yes, I, hey, I repped it. I repped it. I repped it. I know my <laughs> stuff. I know Booktopia has been on the, you know, I've never oh, bought from Booktopia, but if I ever come down there, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> got to rep both of them. So yeah, no, it's, that's great, Nick. And we really do appreciate you taking the time. I, I know you've got a lot of interviews talking about the book and you're busy creating your own content. So we'll put links in the show notes. You're also you know, active on Twitter dollars and data right yep at dollars and data it's all lowercase uh find me there if you have questions feel free to dm me i'm always taking dms from people and try to respond to everything i can so feel free to reach out and everything appreciate you guys taking your time for this so thank you now we really appreciate it nick and kate as always thanks for joining me thanks for listening everyone thanks for tuning in to this episode of the australian finance podcast where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all australians If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. 
You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.